Yeah, so I have no idea how to start these. I've never hosted a machine learning. This is exactly how. That's so you have to say those exact words, mm-hmm. and then it's done. Huh? Then you have to remember every word from the giant title that you created, Sam. Machine learning, a pod about the machine from Pod Against the Machine, the only actual play podcast with a supplementary podcast with a 25-word title. Well done. Perfect. Except that was a 27-word title because yeah. I knew it. Okay. It. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. Delete everything. Probably get rid All of right. the show. I blame the cat holding your cue cards. There's no way you remembered that. <laughs> All right, so um, yeah, this is machine learning for the episodes that came out in July, which were, you know, pretty chill group of episodes. Uh, It's 29 through 32 for those keeping track as part of the home game. I am your host, Sam. I've never hosted one of these before. I've never hosted any podcast before that I can remember. Um, And we have everybody here. Indeed we do. It's supposed to work better in machine learning. I don't think we set that precedent, have we? Raking things up, Sam. <laughs> it's called collaborative storytelling. We're all making things up. True story. I'm going to be leaving all of these awkward silences. Yeah, <laughs> really had that run time. Outstanding. As well, as well I deserve. <laughs> um, so episode 29 was Potent Potables... The very capable four uh, failed to talk Sandville Tret out of a fight, and um, things went pretty bad for Mr. Tret. Yeah, how did you all feel about just absolutely brutally destroying a guy who was really just nice? Regretful. I mean, <laughs> I'm sad we killed him. I'm kind of not sad that we got him out of the picture in some way. <laughs> considering what we learned about what he wanted to do. Just hang out. Drink some some sodas. <laughs> I'm trying to remember how and when I turned so viscerally against Danville, because I don't care at all that he's dead, and I'm a nice person. And probably Kira, too. Could it be when he kidnapped me? I mean, possibly... That sounds right, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, he did something. I really just, I can't remember when he let thing. everyone realize that he might not be the best guy. When he ratnapped you and then cast dispersions against Kira and her possible ties to the crime syndicate. Although Kira doesn't know that, but Izzy does, so... You know how there are some people, they say like, oh, you just got to get to know him. He grows on you. Sandville's kind of like the opposite of that. (laughs) The more you interact with him, the less you enjoy his company. The more you interact with him, the more you get to really know the depth of the smell. You get to see the interesting drug habits and those boils that shoot corrosive whatever it was. Yeah. Those are fun. (laughs) So he had a lot of confidence 
for a guy whose day job is a scrap trader to go up against four seasoned adventurers and think he's going to win. I was I was wondering if that was part of the character development or more of a commentary on don't do drugs, kids. They'll make you think that you are invincible. Fair. Because, yeah, I could not wrap my mind around him. Like, why why he can't possibly want to fight us because he has to know he's going to lose. But he did, so. I got the impression that he still didn't necessarily want to fight us. I mean, I would think that one, logic was gone at that point for him. Yeah, he was so clearly inebriated that whatever was going on, he... But I also think that in the beginning, he was, he was angry and he was jittery, but he didn't initially want to fight. And I think that's what screwed Bricks up the most, is that like, you know, Sandville didn't just bomb us from behind or something like that. Or he didn't even, I mean, he didn't really get a chance to do much, but like, sorry, Sam. But it, it was, <laughs> I think that's what made it sort of bittersweet is that like, if Sandville was a super buffed BBEG, or even if he came, like, came wandering in after we did the Meonda fight and tried to hit us like after we'd used a bunch of resources or something, maybe. But I mean, like it was so clearly stacked against him that fight. I don't know. It, it was a it was a very viscerally painful thing for Bricks. It was a physical severing of his tie to Torch, but it was also kind of a weird rebirth moment for him too, of being like, my new connection to town is the very capable four. Sandville and I have diverged in this path of what we feel, technology, who it belongs to, whatever. But yeah, no. If it doesn't pull back the curtain too much, Sam, does it does is Sandville supposed to encounter us at that point? Well, pulling back the curtain some, because obviously we are past uh, this, the book leaves you a lot of leeway. Like, Sandville is basically always going to try to stab you in the back. He's always, like, sort of working with the Technic and trying to, you know, funnel information to them or um, steal whatever it is that you recover from under the mountain. They leave you a lot of leeway. Um, on when that happens and I made some changes to how he would act uh, partially or largely because uh, Brixby kind of worked into having this relationship with him and it really changed like how he was interacting with all of you and like how he was thinking about it and partially because he was a really fun character to get in his head. But one of the th one of the main things they tell you in the book that I didn't change is basically that like he has a history of getting into trouble. He has a wisdom score of eight, and he has bad judgment, <laughs> and he also has a history of drug problems, <laughs> and um, and he's basically in this situation where the single most addictive substance in Galarian is leaking out of the hill in the top of the town, <laughs> and he can just go up there and scoop it up in jars. That's Numerian fluids are extremely addictive and you know he pops them and they they do wisdom damage they mess you up or sometimes they make you like immortal or give you a free level up but <laughs> he didn't get so lucky well eh. so you're telling us we should spend the next several episodes just doing shots and rolling d100s or maybe <laughs> i will let you in on i remember one of the doses of numerian fluid he i think the only one he actually successfully drank the other one he spilled on himself the one he actually drank gave him like the ability to talk to machines and a penalty to bluff and sense motive against non-machine entities. So he couldn't he couldn't lie anymore and he couldn't tell when anyone else was lying. So it wasn't really mechanically relevant at that point. 
he was hoping for like maybe a free level up or immortality for a day or something. Okay, well now I'm really sad and kind of wish we hadn't killed him and maybe, you know, taken to him to a clinic of some sort. Uh, But here we are and he's dead. So sad. Well, if you don't feel bad, I haven't done my job. (laughs) And on the bright side, he's got to make for the most difficult to attack for all the battle bots that Mylon Radley has. Because that grease is like an extra defense. <laughs> Slides right off him. Uh, we spent a good couple minutes on this, but I want really quickly to ask this question. We can stick in the Patreon version. I thought going after Sandville was an interesting choice for Brixby, and I'm wondering, like, why you kind of explained it. You're like, this is, he's made a choice to go with the town instead of Sandville. And I guess we've sort of seen we've, what that cost him since then, which is really cool, but that caught me off guard. I thought for sure Brooks would be like, no, let's be friends again. Yeah, I mean, I always imagined their relationship was a little frenemy-esque in the first place. Like, there are two people, the way that I envision Numeria is that the, the heavily stratified, like, power and class and stuff really causes the people that are at the dregs to just kind of fight for scraps, literally and figuratively in this instance, I guess. And I think that like, I don't know, I think meeting the group without exposing too much, meeting the group has really allowed Brixby to explore things that I don't think he's kept the company of people that have allowed him to explore. Um, And I think Sandville is definitely one of those folks that wouldn't encourage a type of altruistic thinking by any means. He's someone who would see it as weakness. And I think that like, I don't know. It's it, There was this like crux of a moment where uh, a serious moral choice was made. And um, it, it would have surprised me in early episodes to know that Brixby did it too. Sandville's just not a sticker guy. <laughs> well, stickers don't stick to greasy surfaces. Ew, gross. Okay, fair. <laughs> we could go get those drugs out of his room if anybody's looking to talk to robots. I mean, sounds kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the other thing that happened after um, brutally uh, murdering and looting the corpse of Brixby's dear friend uh, was the very capable four leveled up. And um, again, y'all took the elevator down to the previous floor that you'd pretty much cleared of monsters and went to bed. Which rolls us into episode 30, We Are the Face Punchers which started with a series of sort of glimpses into how the very capable four spent the night. Now, I wasn't involved in these, so why don't all of you talk a little bit about what happened that night? I'm not calling on anyone individually because I'm I'm on strike. Jeff, go. Wait, Sam can go on strike? Is this like the uh, podcasters union that I didn't know about? (laughs) If so, I need to read the bylaws real quick. And so I can't share. Unfortunately, I think it's only a podcast host. Oh, Oh, well, in that case. Yeah, we we didn't have any insight. And well, this would be awkward to know if the three other players are messaging each other and didn't include me. But to my knowledge, none of us had any insight into what the other players were thinking. We were all sort of just in our own characters' heads. So I didn't know how dark or serious other people might go necessarily, but I knew that for Asher, that wasn't going to be the case, perhaps to a fault. He's a bit of an optimist. 
at times, and this was a thing that he'd committed to, so uh, it really felt like he would be in that kind of getting his game face on uh, to what that would look like for him, just just grounding himself in what he holds to be his code. And, and yeah, I didn't spend uh, the amount of prep time that some of the other players did on theirs. It was really just, I have things that I know I want to reference, and then I'll just kind of see how that goes. And it was worse in my head, but when I re-listened to it, I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's always tough to follow up other people's. Jeez, if I had known I was going to go after Brixby, I would have just said, like, yeah, I should get a good night's sleep. The end. Like, <laughs> Just so I wouldn't have had to even been thinking about it if I had known that was the order. It's so hot in my office. I know what you mean. I don't know. I thought that levity was welcome because I feel like I fall into the category of, like, I may only have one rogue level, but boy, is Brixby an edgy, sad rogue. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He's little Brixby has been having a hard time with book one setting um, ever since we found part of Gar, but a lot of different bodies that we found under this mountain. Yeah, again, these are things that we'll get into later, but like that has been a particularly triggering instance for Brixby to uh, engage with people that have had, you know, specifically Kira's relationship with Parta, but also... Um, the sadness that that Connor had at knowing that Carol Saunders had died, you know, it's 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 also a time of a lot of changes, and this is the case for all of our characters, right? Like we this has spanned four or five days at this point, and like you know, um, this immense growth in power, and for some of our characters, different powers, different classes, whatever, must be really crazy, <laughs> like to actually live and experience. So I think I was trying to touch on that a bit because like. Brixby's dealing with a lot of power stuff that is latent and not in a sorcerous way, like in the blood, but kind of buried. So I feel like it was one of those typical like things coming from from beneath Brixby cutscenes. But I don't know. I deeply enjoyed everyone's, um, and I'm going to whack the tennis ball over to Izzy. Um. Yeah, I thought it was a great moment for all of us. I know. In the episode, we sort of talked like, oh, it was just, you know, I just had some bullet points on the page or like Zach and I both were like, yeah, I was pulling that up as the, as I was pulling up Audacity to record, which same, sort of, insofar as I had written something for myself as we were turning on the record, but I had the benefit of all of you having given your characters scenes in like other episodes for the level two level up or level three level up or any like any other change before so i knew for this one that i'd wanted to spend a little more time on it anyway because the first three levels for kira and for blood ragers in general is just kind of like you're getting stronger pretty cool stuff all of that which all of that kira's used to um like that's sort of her thing she knows that she's real good at hitting stuff um the magic stuff is new and that is a very convenient sort of um device for also communicating like everything about this is new for her like you know she's i wanted to sort of bypass the new adventure trope by also having okay this is just a kid who's like learning about how the world works um if this was a, a netflix drama she would be going to college or something i don't know but i the point being i had known some of what this would look like from like episode three just because i knew this was coming i didn't know exactly how it would look i i didn't know the days leading up to that would be quite as eventful as they were, but 
yeah, the rest had been in my head just as like a, this is a kid going out in the world in some way or another. Oh, uh, Jerome. As you mentioned, uh, when Sam, 20 minutes before he started, said, hey, you guys are all going to have a little scene when you start. I made just kind of like a bullet point list, kind of like Jeff did. I did not go as all in. But, and again, I got to say, you and Zach both had some really awesome things. Like, again, I know said it during the episode, but your guys' were really good. But for Vargas's, basically his thing, sort of similar to how Jeff said, like, he's an optimist. Like, Vargas is not an optimist, but this was a very optimistic time for him because basically he's kind of been floundering on what to do for, like, the last, literally, like, the last two decades of his life. And he feels like with getting in here and finding out about this stuff, like, with Hellion and all this, like, maybe he's got a purpose again. He has something to do, like, something to drive himself towards, which he basically has not had since he first lost his arm when he was 26 and he's 51 so like he's very much excited for the first time in years about what the future has for him and i'll jump back in just to clarify for any of the listeners who would say Asher's an optimist? Isn't he always the one saying, ooh, don't want to burn consumables? Uh, I sort of, <laughs> in his mind, when there are things that he can control, he's more pragmatic. But when it's things that are entirely, like, in his uh, in his mind, this could go any which way. Caldera's got my back. So kind of situation like a boss fight. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in those situations, he he's optimistic. But yeah, it definitely... He hasn't always been the like, well, sure, burn that epic. Why not? <laughs> He'll get it on the first try, Brixby, huh? Why is he Mickey? <laughs> now we can't cut it because of the Mickey. Oh, hot dog. Yeah, no, we're not cutting Mickey Mouse Asher. <laughs> I want fan art of that. <laughs> Just Mickey Mouse with a, with a grit with a cloud. Gun. With a gun. Oh. <laughs> a gun. Grit cloud is better. I like grit cloud is better. Mickey Mouse, Pigman, Asher, all at the same time. Yeah. He's just every children's cartoon character. Something from every major franchise from the 60s on. Wow. it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Lots of people to disappoint. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you guys did awesome scenes, and that definitely like set the tone for the episodes to come. I mean, for the rest of that episode, you went back downstairs you found Sandville Trett was gone and um some light detective work looked like somebody picked him up and took him out of there probably not that he got up and walk away walked away uh, you found your ways around to the room with the weird statue that was very much pretending to be a statue it didn't know that you knew it wasn't a statue and it totally didn't know that Vargas was going to hurl himself into the room at ridiculous speed and punch it in the face. And that he did, and that was pretty much the end of the gargoyle. It only went down from there. I mean, I guess he, he got some shots in, and he had some staying power because of his damage resistance. But, yeah, he he got punked. <laughs> and um, Akira used her first spell in that fight. 
And uh, Asher got a kill to add to his grit cloud. And then um, you found some... Oh, no, that was Asher's gun misfired. And he got a kill with the grappling hook. Grappling hook. <laughs> yeah, it was feast or famine. It was, uh, let's start this combat off with a super discouraging, I'll just go have a sandwich moment. And then ending with a, oh, cool, that actually did it. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the first tech item kill of the AP, which is big. That's pretty great. Yeah, I mean, that brought that episode to a close, which rolls us into episode 31, which is one of those episodes where just nothing happened. You know, those real slogs. I think, like, you guys explored the room, you found some tech stuff, and then, yeah, that that was the end. Oh yeah, you did break open the big black double doors and find that Mayanda had purple hair because she was an awesome android with pretty much the greatest aesthetic in the history of fantasy role-playing games. Um, she has a gun, and she had a robot buddy, one of the ones that could fly around and hug you. And um, she also definitely could cast divine spells. She also definitely cut Sandville Tret's brain open and was rooting around in there with a spiked gauntlet. So that was fun. She also definitely had a white key card, which we did not need to get into the room. <laughs> we got in the hard way <laughs> with our black e-picks. That was with a, probably a very good role. That was literally the, I think the only time in this podcast thus far that I've been like, all right, pressure's on bricks. And it's just like come through. So it felt really, that was like one of my rewarding roles podcast, especially because I blew two sky medals for those roles, one for each one. So glad we made it through Then a big middle finger to the mountain for doing it all without a white key card and getting it after uh that <laughs> felt very very good or bad i'm not sure and i just checked my notes because i was curious we got those epics way back in episode five wow so to to have them come in clutch here in the start of the you know the early 30s to open up the boss fight door what a cool payoff and this was only the second time we even used them because we used them once to attempt to open the white chest and it failed and we didn't want to waste any more and then just didn't use them for like 30 episodes. Well, I, you did use it also to pick the lock on the door at the end of the oh, simulated right, Kasatha yeah. environment. We, we have eight yeah. uses on them right now out yeah. of 10. Uh, well, I guess then we can just throw another battery in there, right? Is that how that works? Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. I love that. That, that is a really neat part of tech items in general. Like, we haven't gotten to that point. I assume that's going to be much more like book two, book three, especially as we find more cool guns yeah. and stuff and other consumables that don't feel incredibly niche. Well, apparently guns don't take batteries, according to... Uh, <laughs> and the guns take the yeah, healing... Yeah, take tiny robots and turn them into uh, melting pellets because, oh, yeah, it's true. you know, <laughs> science or whatever. It just melts all those tiny robots together. That's sort of how I envision it, yeah. Like, what were those things from Stargate that were like, uh, Stargate SG-1, that were the robots that could just kind of keep combining into giant, unstoppable things? Like those things. Just rocking my nerd credit of this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so how did you all feel about that fight with Meanda after 30 episodes of build-up to the purple-haired woman? She should have brought a Galarn. 
Yeah, she should have. I'm just saying that that or allying herself with Hetuath would have been, she could have had the mountain at that point. Mm -hmm. I feel that she was oddly enough, I don't know if it was just because we were finally learned how to play our characters or if like four is kind of that magic level where a lot of stuff comes online. But man, that was easier than I thought. There was definitely a concern uh, that Vargas was going to go down there, but even then, I was like, you just leave. I think we're good here. Yeah. I mean, Vargas did go down, and then he got down, down, way down. (laughs) Yeah, he's just tub thumping as usual. (laughs) Which, for me, the player of Asher, I haven't had to be as concerned about imminent death since the since going unconscious. The only time. Uh, so far in book one, you know, at least in against the Galarn. So it was a, a grateful realization and remembering of my own core class mechanic. Like, ah, yes, it's only a Swifty to uh, lay on hands to myself because otherwise <laughs> I'm just imagining Asher just standing there with, with, you know, had we still had a wand or just with a bunch of potions, she keeps shooting him and he's like, potion, that's my whole turn. Somebody kill her, please. Potion. <laughs> Uh, but th- thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, swift action healing is a thing for paladins. It was uh, it was more tense for me hearing other people say like that. Oh, yeah, easier than expected. As uh, it was tense. You almost went into that fight without a gun, right? Or without a real? You had grapnel. Yeah. I like yeah. just remember. Wh- wh- maybe you this totally is a thing. That would have been bad. I can't even imagine. <laughs> like. In retrospect, I think this is one of those things that people who have played a lot more Pathfinder than I have just know about gunslingers. But I'm, I'm just, it's just sort of dawning on me, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, if you misfire, if you roll, it's a one, only a one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, only a one with this firearm and this type of ammo. Yes. Got it, okay. And then you just, like, don't get to use the gun again for... Yeah, because I feel like this didn't happen. I mean, my only other experience with gunslinger is, you know, the first, I don't know, what, 100 episodes of glass cannon podcast and i was like i feel like i don't remember this happening as often but maybe i just didn't know what was happening one of asher's two (laughs) archetypes i'm pretty sure it's the mysterious stranger it replaces the level one gunslinger deed quick clear which is super useful with something else i think it's just focused aim and that means you no longer can just say hey i'll quickly clear it's no big deal i'll spend an hour the offset to that had I been going gunslinger all the way is I think at level five, mysterious strangers can ignore misfires a number of times equal to their charisma modifier. So that's pretty dope. Oh, uh, nice. But being a gunslinger one at this point <laughs> in the game means that's in the distant future. Uh, Asher totally would have gone in with the grappling hook gun. And honestly, as the auto grapnel. If he hits once and gets to pull her down off the platform, we could have ended this fight a yeah, lot sooner. Yeah, that's fair. It would have been a lot easier. Yeah. yeah, you just pull her down and everybody just beats <laughs> on her while she's that laying That didn't cross my mind until after recording because it was so tense. Because I didn't want to have to draw it. It's a full round, fire, slow firing gun. So it would have taken two rounds for me to get to shoot once if I didn't come into the room with it in my hands. And so I didn't, I didn't think it was worth it for the attempt. But yeah, if you'd gone in there with no gun... I mean, cool. Let's uh, let's Batman this girl. 
I love the idea of the mysterious stranger class feature allowing you to just ignore a misfire. Like you just Clint Eastwood glare at your gun and then it just like fixes itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to look deeper. I don't know that it actually doesn't require fixing eventually. Uh, I just think in the moment you're you can ignore it and then fix it later, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, but like the Leone <laughs> yeah. whistle plays in the background and it just, yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually did have a question for Asher, which was, so we proved in this fight that she was casting divine spells, like Sam had mentioned. We know how the other religious member of this party, uh, who it doesn't, we don't need to mention who it is, feels about people that might fall outside of their religion or might fail their god how does asher who doesn't speak as much about his uh divine beliefs with the rest of the members of the party oddly enough feel about hellion being real enough to grant divine powers i think i think more of that's going to come to light in book two as we hopefully get to learn more about hellion for for this at post mayanda fight asher like his headspace he's I think at this point he's more curious than anything because we see a a neutral, a not evil person supposedly trying to save the world. So certainly a misguided cleric. But whether or not that reflects on Hellion's alignment or intentions, Asher doesn't know. In this like polytheistic Galarian world, even clerics and paladins, I mean, just for those of you listening at home, uh, like a cleric of Saren Ray doesn't like hate people who follow Iomade or any other deity. It's just like, yeah, but this is the one who grants me my powers. We're tight. Uh, but like Shailen's cool too or whatever. Like it, it totally varies person to person. Uh, and so at this point, with that being Caden K- Killian or Kaelian or however anyone wants to pronounce it, Caden touches a star stone drunk and he becomes a god and people are cool with that and he's like super popular so someone coming up as a god and scrap wall like huh well that's curious don't love that they're gonna let torch be destroyed but don't know whether that means hellion's a bad dude yeah but he could be chaotic good you can have which is one of the things like talking about like how the people can be different from their deity you can worship and gain powers from a deity that you're one alignment away from in any direction (laughs) which is one that always got me it's like so you can be a chaotic neutral character and worship a chaotic good or a chaotic evil god and still get their stuff so hellion theoretically could be a good god he probably is he seems like a nice guy probably you know, it was a symbol again, a giant demonic hand. Just a claw. I'm sure he's a great guy. Yeah, it, it's you, like a claw. A friendly claw, though. Were you at all tempted that in the gargoyle fight to make the gargoyle actually be the claw and there just be a gargoyle statue just to screw with us? <laughs> or was that level of psyop that was beyond Mayanda's tactic blocks? Well, if he had some kind of like shape-shifting or something, that would have been cool. It would have been funny to have like just like a decommissioned robot or something sitting there. We were all beating that up while the gargoyle was hiding <laughs> in a corner. Yeah. So after um, 
long fight with her longish fight with Meanda. Uh, Kira finally knocked her out. We flipped over to the next episode with her bleeding to death. She stabilized. Oh, one thing we sh- probably shouldn't gloss over from 31 was that um, in that fight when Vargas was uh, at negative hit points but still up because Vargas is always up no matter how badly he gets knocked out, uh, he finally accepted technological healing and it gave him a hallucination of his <laughs> god, uh, giving him a headbutt. And that, uh, that I think, changed things a little bit for Vargas. Would you say that, Jero? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say that he is now perfectly okay. And I love that the die roll came out that way and that that's the decision that you made because I, as a player, felt so bad that I was wasting all the wands, but I had decided, like, no, he's... Not only is he a Kelid, he is the son of a Kelid shaman, and he literally was in a war where the other side were using, like, magic and technology. Like, he would never want this kind of healing. <laughs> and I'm so glad that we landed that role on hallucination that that's the one you decided on because as far as he's concerned like that was a sign from Gorum that it's okay for him to accept this kind of healing now which means I don't have to feel bad about <laughs> not taking the super abundant healing anymore. It was super cool mechanically how how you were still up in that fight by the way. Yeah. That was a neat intersection of traits and of the two different yeah yeah. that was that was some i had thought of doing that a couple of times before but and i think i mentioned that it's a super weak because it's a background trait that gives him the health but it only gives you one point per hit die so even at level four it gives him four temporary hit points which if you're getting back up in the middle of the fight, that's nothing. Somebody looks at you too hard and you're going back down with four temporary hit points. So I haven't been bothering to use it because at the lower levels, it was even more useless, especially because a lot of times I was down more than what it gave me. Like this one, I just happened to have the right number because I was at negative one. So I'm like, oh, if I use this, I use one ability to go down to negative two and wake up and then use the other one, and it puts me at positive two. (laughs) So I can actually get up and help. And if I get healed, and I'm luckily standing a foot away from Brixby, we can do this. Yeah, so that takes us into episode 32, Stabilized Mayanda, and found a whole bunch of cool stuff, including what um, Mayanda had on her, the aforementioned white key card, and um, her gun that shoots melted robots, and... I think she had a healing gun that wasn't time-worn, too, right? Yeah, she had a better healing gun, which is big. That is actually a pretty valuable item, because it's it's basically a cure moderate wounds wand, but in gun form, so you don't have to use magic device to use it. And then there was the chip that was in Sanville's brain uh, that she'd tossed out on the floor. That was nice. And uh, I think after some discussion, uh, you stuffed an iron taped up Mayanda into the bag of holding and um, Brixby uh, did some engineering checks and uh, hit some buttons and it made a lot of noises and fireworks in the engine room. So that looked looked pretty promising. Yeah, but after that, since you didn't know if the torch was on or not, there was no way you were going to check the white chest on the way out. But you totally did and it was full of bombs. And a space suit and a stun gun that wasn't lifted from Halo or anything. 
<laughs> and then after that, to end the month, you headed out towards the surface to see if the torch was lit. And then, weirdly, the month ended. It was just like, that was it. We have no idea what happened from there. Well, we had a good run. It's all a blur. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was great. What a satisfying, like, final boss battle. I felt like, in general, that battle and the gargoyle battle really showed all of us knowing battle positioning better, how to play our characters a little bit better. I say this specifically as the person who didn't just run headlong in with their die six, hit die, <laughs> and just go down. So I think we, we all learned and grew and became better and more capable. We decided instead to send in the guy with the D8 to immediately <laughs> rush in and go down. Step right, well, up. I spent most of that fight not hitting Mayanda, so I think all, we can all chin up. But hey, that robot went down faster. Yeah. Yeah, compared to the first one, which, again, I think we mentioned another machine learning, we're actually still fighting in an alternate <laughs> universe right now. <laughs> We took this one out in like three hits compared to that other one that took an entire hour and a half episode to beat. Yeah, we like to to let Zach edit the the truly tedious and painful ones. <laughs> and we thank that. him gratefully and graciously. Thanks, Zach. There's so much gold in there. Oh my God. Yeah, if we ever do a, a Patreon inventory logistics podcast... Boy, do we have the first three episodes ready for you guys. (laughs) Well, I think that takes us to the end of our recap, the end of part one of this machine learning. So we'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Hello, and welcome back to Mysteries of Galarian. As always, I am your host, Avish Dattenbeil. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the thylacine, colloquially known as the Aslanti tiger. This deer-sized carnivore is believed to be one of the largest marsupials to ever exist on Galarian, having once been extremely common throughout the regions bordering the Arcadian Ocean. Thylacines were, like many other species, devastated by Earthfall. While the main population of thylacines were wiped out by the impact event, smaller groups were able to survive, and in some cases even thrive for the next several thousand years. However, their numbers were never truly able to rebound, and they were unable to compete with larger and less specialized predators such as dire wolves and big cats. Thylacine numbers continued to dwindle, with the last known sighting in the wild taking place in the year 4575 AR. Captive thylacines continued to be bred and trained as animal companions for the next century or so. But the last of these, Gen Bimin, passed away in 4682. The Aslanti tiger is therefore now believed to be completely extinct. However, even now, over 30 years after Gen Bimin's death, and nearly two centuries after their extinction in the wild, there are still unconfirmed reports of sightings. Of these strange beasts. A confirmed counter with a live thylacine, or even possibly an entire pack, would truly be a discovery for the ages, and the creatures themselves would be considered incredibly valuable 
to the naturalist community at large. But the chances of these sightings being the real thing are so slim as to be nearly certainly flights of fancy or misidentification of other animals. Most likely, the thylacine is truly gone from Galarian. Or is it? Welcome back to <laughs> Machine Learning, a pod about the machine from Pod Against the Machine, the only podcast with a supplementary podcast with a 25-word title. No, that was it. I feel like I missed something in there, no. but it's... You got it. You nailed it. Uh, I won't... Maybe only it was confidence. just the missing actual play. It was... No, the, the only thing you were missing was confidence. Because you got it. It may have also felt wrong because technically this is the second half of an episode where you already introduced the title at the beginning of the first half, so we didn't necessarily need to introduce it again. Well, I welcomed back, though, because they were gone. Yeah, no, they were listening to that, uh... They were listening to that segment from, uh... Ava Statenbio, and they had to switch back from that to us. We should keep all of this in just to prove that we sometimes keep stuff in or out. Oh, yeah, we certainly... We never edit anything out at all, no. We just save it for later. (laughs) If only we had been saving, we could have just a good hour and a half clip show of all the beeped uh, swears that Izzy and Zach, for the most part, have authored. And it wouldn't have any context. It would just be a bunch of beeps and sword swooshes and lasers. <laughs> I'm still so upset that we didn't save other people's mouth water. Other people's oh, inside, inside water. water. Excuse me. And the inside water. Ah, yes. Oh, man. Yeah, what, what points do we have to get to to do a clip show? Do we get it at 50? Are we allowed to just phone one in at that point where we just cobble together? No, it wasn't the Clerks animated series who did that at episode two. Episode two was a clip show of episode yeah, like one. one. Yes. Episode two, yeah. yeah, but the thing was that episode one that they referenced the clips from was the unaired pilot. So it was all clips that no one had seen. I only know this because I bought the DVDs. I'm the I know only person in the world who bought the DVDs of the Clerks animated series. But yes. Okay. Well, now I feel like I need to update my answer for your favorite movie. Let me take these notes i mean i also have the clerk dvd set i have tusk on dvd you are not going to out kevin smith (laughs) wow i have the independent film duck on dvd uh it's very good it's my favorite homeless man plus duck film i've ever seen well i think we have a good transition into our first question from darby seeker of gabagool who asks, what does Izzy think each cast member's favorite movie is? I wasn't anticipating. I was thinking this is going to be really a wind down because, again, I spent a lot of time on this, up to four seconds on each thought, during at which point I may or may not have been just a little bit high, but it just, I think, expands the creativity. (laughs) Kids don't do drugs, I guess. And I have a list here. Okay. I will say, to caveat, I have seen half of these movies and don't know what the other two are about at all but just based on the things that pop into my mind sam 12 angry men no context that's it dro the manchurian candidate but the black and white one not the one that probably came out in like the last i don't know 30 30 years or something like that i think they did a remake yeah like 2002 or something i think there we go see yeah for sure i know that someone gets assassinated spoiler alert maybe who can say jeff 
a Star War. You are welcome to choose any of them that you want. I assume it's one of the original trilogy, but just to be contrarian, like maybe you really like the first one, and by the first one, I mean number one with the, the red and black <sighs> guy. Was that the first one? Don't worry about it. Zach, I don't like movies. I like dogs and water. <laughs> right, feel free to score me as you will. Uh, listeners, if you don't like those options, it's not my fault. I just went with what I assume everyone's favorite film was, except for Zach. Yeah, no, I mean, it was it was on the nose. I mean... Thank you. Thanks. The little-known sequel to Air Bud, Water Bud, does in fact <laughs> encompass both of those things. However, it has not seen U.S. release, so... I'm giving myself 100%. I think you were really on point. I mean, I honestly, I would say extended pod racing edition episode one for Jeff, I'm thinking. Like, just the pod racing? I'm gonna just walk out. It's been a good run. Just 93 minutes of hating yes. sand. I think it, it's actually just the cutscenes from the N64 classic Shadows of the Empire for Jeff. <laughs> Zack Snyder's four hours. <laughs> hey, that is still to this day the best Star Wars game. <laughs> I mean, Dash Rendar, the greatest non-Han Solo clone ever to grace the polygonal screen. I'm partial to KOTOR, but uh, that was a good one. Non-film game based in a film universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what is a film really, you know? A series of feelings and words, probably. I don't watch movies because I don't have the attention span for them, but I love a sitcom. Okay, so I think I nailed that one, right? We're good to... Yeah, I mean, I've never seen 12 Angry Men, but I assume it's good. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, it's like a jury, right? That's. Yeah, I assume also that. So yeah, it's One of the members of a jury decides to basically break every rule that a jury is supposed to follow, as well as several actual laws. And then he's considered the hero. I totally get Sam from that. Yeah. I'm pretty good at this. Let me know if you want me to guess anyone else's favorite movies. I am, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Z underscore Mist. Please don't well, do that. That sounds you, terrifying. Uh, it's Mist with a Y. <laughs> we can't end without you guessing the favorite movie of the question asker, Darby. Mm. There's a movie with, like, from, like, the 80s, which is before their time, of, of, like, some sort of Mario and Luigi situation. Is there a pizza involved? <laughs> Zach's face is saying no. I'm gonna say There's there's a horrifying live action Mario. Like Are, are you talking about the incredible Amazing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with John Leguizamo. <laughs> yeah, Bob Hoskins and uh John Leguizamo. <laughs> Mario Mario and Luigi Mario? The Mario Brothers? Yeah, and Dennis Hopper, Oscar winner, Dennis Hopper plays King Koopa. It is a fantastic film probably the best video game adaptation of a film and since you know maybe street fighter yeah it's definitely up there the same energy um you don't have rel julia which is always a takedown but bob hoskins carries a lot of weight and yoshi is a velociraptor Rest in peace. we've successfully pointed out all of the reasons yeah. why it's definitely Bobby's <laughs> favorite film checks out thanks team you heard it here first Possibly for the first time ever, because of how that was a unrevealed fact until just now. 
the self-discovery that other podcasts don't grant their listeners when they submit questions. Learning is in the title. It's not just for the machines, it, Darby. You know, you, you come to hear about a show and you learn something about yourself. Machine mm. and Darby learning. <laughs> An oddly hostile twist there at the end but what about our next question <laughs> um, well now that we've had that little warm up let's go into the more um, climax of book one questions so we're going to start with one from Rain Zero uh, from To Have and To Roll who asks if you could convert Mayanda to worshipping any other deity in Pathfinder which would it be I feel like Nivy Ram Dazzle. I'm gonna mispronounce this, and some dork is gonna make fun of me. But Nivy Ram Dazzle would appreciate the hair for one, and probably that she's made of junk. Yeah, that's that's my vote. That's the like gnome god of <laughs> everything else. Gambling but, and yeah, I just remember she has like a pip die, and she's very gnome like. So <laughs> that's that's my answer. I'm trying to think. If there's like a nature god, a druidic god that just absolutely hates technology, because I think that would be the funniest one to convert an android over to. It's just a lot of stuff. I think the one people usually point to for hating technology is Arastal. <laughs> it's like the farming. There's a lot of problems. He with hates a I... lot of stuff, but he's people pretend he's super chill, but there's a lot of hate. Deep cut. <laughs> My vote is, uh, I'm mispronounce this one, Jaidi, Our Lady of Grain. <laughs> Fair. That's what we call a throwback. <laughs> Nailed it. And a big thanks to Camp and Collateral Damage for pointing out that that was a deity that already existed. I was ready to homebrew one for the Lady of Grains, <laughs> and there she was, all along in ancient Asland. All right, then I would follow up with, I don't know any of the Pathfinder gods. When we started this, I was like, I'm going to make Kira an atheist because I don't want to have to learn things. Um, but I know, based on my listen through of Glass Cannon, there's like a butterfly-based something or other. Yep. Desna. Is that? Re- yeah. yeah. And, and I like butterflies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Right? Probably. So that, for sure, that one. Nailed it. It's a good one. I'm not exaggerating. She's big in Numeria. She is. She's she's cool. But she she's over dreams yeah. and what else does is she the goddess of? Travelers. Um standpoint. Oh, yeah, that's right. She does do travelers. Yeah, travelers and freedom and then I'll fight in giant bug monsters. Luck, yeah. Wait, not any butterflies? No, she's like a lunar yeah. moth butterfly situation. Yeah, her symbol is a butterfly. Okay. So then, like, who who is the god or goddess of butterflies? I need that person. Probably god. And if you tell me there is one, no, no, I quit. I'm walking out. I'm joining Jeff in the hallway to be annoyed. <laughs> I came back, but oh, okay. this well, is awkward. We'll switch. That's fair. Well, I would say Grandmother Spider, because <laughs> she's very much like the Rage Against the Machine God. And that's the name of the podcast, and she 
I can't think of a more apt answer right now. So there you go. Awesome. She likes to screw over the other gods. Yeah, she's great. So we'll go with that one. She's like the, isn't she like a trickster god from Mwangi Expanse, kind of based on Anasazi? Their version of Anansi. Anansi, yeah. Yeah. Props to us for not taking the low-hanging fruit of Bry. Nobody was like, you're a machine. How about the Whisper in Bronze? Like, nah. (laughs) That's too easy. That's lazy. Yeah. That's basically what she's already doing. She's just like hipster. She's worshiping hipster Bry. And bring me on to the kite and just him being like, do you think this sonnet comes on too strong? Because now that's all I'm imagining that he was doing over Connor's like poor corpse is just workshopping his love poetry. Which oh, he definitely was. Now I think that takes us to a sort of pack of questions that we got from Balandera. I know that that's not really how you say it. <laughs> She's never gonna. We're never gonna say your name correctly. I'm so sorry, everyone in the podcast, for you, <laughs> Balandra. I thought it was Belandora. Dora. Yeah, let's correctly and with respect. It's okay, we're Twitter friends. I'm going to start with the one for Jeff. The very capable four seem to have Chaldira's favor. If the worst should happen and Asher is the only survivor of an encounter, how would he react? Would he see it as a sign that there's more left for him to do or as a curse? Oh, that is a really good question. And one of the aphorisms that Chaldiran followers have is how lucky am I or how lucky I am uh, said supposed to be said whether you're in an unlucky or a lucky situation because both because neither is a reflection of bad like la- lack of favor so much as just like hey good luck bad luck I'm lucky like no matter the situation and I think that Asher would continue to press on uh, as difficult as it might be emotionally because he he likes these people with all their faults and there's so many (laughs) these law breaking like breaking and entering people that just won't anyway uh yeah he would see it as he still has more work to do and he would see it as a sign of luck that he survived and in a non-judgmental way those who do have luck uh, in Chaldean followers' eyes are more righteous. So it would be like a reflection of, yeah, my righteousness preserved me. Maybe he'd regret that he didn't convert everybody before they... And otherwise, maybe they'd have been spared. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> For Jero, the question is, have Vargas's feelings about technology been altered in any way over the course of the adventure so far? And we have a supplementary question from GKLN, Agent of Chaos. Why is the robot arm okay, but other technology isn't? Uh, Well, I guess to answer the supplementary one first, it's not technically a robot arm, it's a magic arm. Though to be fair, he also hates magic, so that doesn't really make it much better. But as far as the arm, it's basically he's... A lot more okay with magic as he currently is than he was when he was younger. His thoughts on technology, though, have not changed much. He is okay with being healed with it now after uh, the fight with Mianda. But as far as actual 
messing with any other kind of technology goes just he's had way too long of having this drilled into his head that you don't touch technology for a couple of days worth of messing with it and for the most part having a bunch of stuff happen that he would was warned would happen <laughs> has not done anything to really change his outlook on technology and whether or not he should be interacting with it considering about nine out of every ten pieces of technology he's touched under the hill have attempted to kill him. So you're saying the next time Gorham shows up he in a hallucination, he's going to have to basically be a robot. He's going to be like Cletus from the old NFL commercials. Um, and he's going to have mm -hmm. a football and stuff. I know that that didn't land, and I knew it coming in. I never knew that thing was called I a Cletus. I don't know what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about, the football <laughs> robot, but I had no idea it had a name. Well, <laughs> for Zach, Brixby has said that his brother and mother had more affinity for magic than he did. But now that Brixby is more wizard than rogue, how has his relationship with the arcane been altered? Yeah, this is kind of a difficult one because we've only really touched on elements of Brixby's backstory in one of the intros, and uh, he shared a little bit in his other level-up sequences, but not a whole lot. Brixby has a complicated relationship to his family, to say the least. When he and his brother were young, um, his father of the sneaky, stabby persuasion, um, and famous for it accordingly, really disparaged the utility of magic. And Brixby's mom had a lot of different struggles and her magic was kind of seen as a curse in a lot of ways, accordingly. Brix, I think at this point had seen, as, as avid listeners of the podcast can tell, his rogue skills fail to protect him and his new friends time and time again. And I think that the magic, the magic that he is discovering from these notes that he keeps that from his interactions with Connor from his kind of fighting alongside uh, everybody now who is, is magic in their own respect um, he's seen a more practical use for it so I think that that is probably the most concise answer he sees a he sees a more utilitarian magic in front of him and he's he's happy to apply it to save his own hide and everybody else. And Izzy. Kira brought the very capable four together to relight the torch. Now that the torch has been relit, how does she feel about venturing to Scrapwall after being reunited with her family? Is she worried that her relationship with the group will change if they find out about the incident that prompted her to relight the torch in the first place? I would just like to say this is both a great question and very, um, what's that thing where you know things are coming before they happen? It's it's that thing. Prescient. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll keep this short because a lot of this will be answered in the next couple of episodes. But um, yeah, no, I think Kira's plan is to stay home and I will be leaving the pod. <laughs> Wow, that's a big spoiler. <laughs> we were going to string that one out for a while. Yeah, no, I, I, you know what? I was done with it. I was like, I don't want to record any more episodes. I'm leaving. No, that's a joke. I would love to record more episodes. Please don't kill me. Um, great <laughs> questions. This was, uh, I guess, in as few words as I can make of this, given that I've already wasted 30 seconds. I 
in the little character building book for um, Iron Gods, you know, it says, like, if your character is going to have a hard time leaving Torch, don't play that character. And I was like, "Mm, but what if I do? (laughs) Which I think then the easy solve there was sort of this combination of, like, a coming-of-age story slash, like, a new adventurer story. Um, So writing out Kira, I knew, like, three things about her, and the rest I was like, well, just learn, because she's a kid. So the... There is definitely a lot of trepidation about what will happen when her friends find out what she did. There is a lot of trepidation about leaving, but there's also very much this like, I imagine like a kid getting to go to like, getting ready to go to college, just kind of like, what's out there? I'm going to explore. And I think the other part of it is she does feel not even a responsibility, but like um, almost a compulsion to stay with her friends. Like there is still this some part of her that we I haven't explored quite as much for a number of reasons but I think she is still very much in like defense mode when she sees someone gets hurt she's still in kind of like oh my friend just died I don't want that to happen again so I think there's some part of her who's kind of like this is the only way to keep my friends safe so that's kind of like that's what it is like other feelings don't come into play necessarily or not as strongly and I think that is most of the answers that won't also be answered in the next couple of episodes all right and that's going to bring us to the last bit of Belindora's five-pack of questions. The very capable four decided to spare Meanda rather than kill her. What made you decide to do that? Have you ever spared a boss before? I haven't spared a boss before that I can recall. But this felt like a situation where if Meanda was evil, it wouldn't have been a question for Asher. He's not the most zealously evil smiting paladin around, but there would have been a mechanical smite evil going on, and I think the fight would have gone differently in that regard. But the conversation, the fact that she was always willing to talk and say, you know, she gave like like a lot of steps of instructions in what we were supposed to do, like bring the power relay, prostrate yourselves before Hellion, etc., etc., but she didn't seem out for blood. And so I think like that that wasn't lost on Asher or me as a player. <laughs> that like this didn't seem just like a big mustache twirling villain. This seemed like an incredibly zealous person uh, who conveniently we also really needed some answers from. But yeah, it just it she didn't as much as she was a boss, she didn't seem like she was necessarily a villain. I mean, I don't know if that's too kind but yeah that's sort of where my thought process was yeah i think she you know i get i'm trying to think how i personally felt because that always colors how my characters feel and even at the worst i don't ever think i thought like this is a bad guy which i've thought about several of the other characters and been like i don't really care if we kill them whatever you know and once we like you said jeff once we got starting to talk to her it was more of like this makes me sad and i feel like we should talk to her and make her life better whereas i guess kira saw something similar but more of like this is not a person who wanted to hurt us this is a person who is like very misguided and maybe someone can talk to her and we'll fix it and it'll be fine um although she is deeply skeptical about this whole hellion thing to begin with which mechanically atheist i guess it makes sense but also you know that whole thing for existing in a world where gods are like a thing short answer uh yeah same same jeff yeah, I, I don't think we ever have unless we were supposed to, never like a boss, a boss boss, maybe like an enemy. I think it's interesting, right? Because like speaking of in this world, the way that Izzy 
phrased it. Too often, you kind of just do the thing where you're like, okay, we go into the mountain. And then we come out and we're like, there's a body in the blanket. Don't you worry about it. We killed this. We got this under control or whatever. Whereas like, now we can be like, oh, hey, you know, if you want some recourse and understanding for why your town was in peril, here's someone that can be accountable for that. We're going to leave. Because I do feel like sometimes <laughs> in you know, Pathfinder and other RPG games that I've played, it's kind of like the, don't worry about it. We got it. We're heroes. So this kind of provides a, a little bit more of a immersive world element. Taking a prisoner, bringing them to weird <laughs> cells under town hall for questionable justice. But hey, something. Similar to Zach, I can think of times when I've played where we've spared like enemies just in general. And maybe a couple of times where it's been someone that you could call like maybe like a lieutenant or something. A character that's been mentioned ahead of time, like, oh, yeah, eventually you're going to have to fight so-and-so. But they've never been the boss. Like, they always have somebody above them. And she doesn't really have that. She is the boss of book one. She is the leader of this gang. And someone that like that high up on the enemy food chain, I don't think I've ever spared before in a game. But similar to what everybody else said, she seems more misguided than evil and it is also nice just to be able to hand an enemy over to someone and say like this is the person that caused all your problems take them to court like instead of yeah we went there and killed them have fun rebuilding your town <laughs> like, and I, I don't think playing I've ever really spared like the boss boss I know that fairly recently um, in a game Commodore, actually, from the server is in, uh, that I was running Feast of Ravenmore, the party at the end basically decided to totally forego the boss. Like, they knew where it was, and they could have gone and, and fought them, and they were just like, ah, we have what we came for, we're just gonna go. <laughs> and they, you know, they let the machinations go on, but they technically completed the job that they were out to do, so... It was a pretty different situation. But, um, um, so I think to close out Q&A, we're just going to do one more question. We got a whole bunch this week, which we're going to save up for uh, the next machine learning. But um, just to close things out, we got another round table one. This one from Sir Newt, who has mysteriously converted from Team Machine to Team Human, who asks, you each get to choose one magic item to get in real life, level five or lower. What is it? I may or may not have been desperately looking up <laughs> wonders and magic items before this episode started in case this is one of the questions. And I found a level four item, so it just barely falls under it. But there is an item, a helm of comprehend languages and read magic. And it is a hat that lets you understand any spoken or written language. To be fair, it also lets you read magic, but... Honestly, I'd be kind of shocked if I got that in real life and suddenly was able to read magic since there isn't any, but I guess I could read just the hat. But yeah, the ability to like read any language, especially just in terms of how neat it would be to just be able to talk fluently to anyone or be able to read stuff from like languages that don't exist anymore, like Etruscan or something would be pretty freaking cool. Well, that is maybe the most well-thought-out answer anyone is going to get. But let me just Google magic pathfinder <laughs> items. <laughs> Love it. All right. <clears throat> I got this one. I just searched caster level five magic items in my hero lab. And the first one that I came upon that absolutely I would have in real life 
is the Red Hound Ring. Casts a level five item, $4,700. Uh, this white gold ring engraved with images of a mastiff and a thundercloud. It's a ring of protection plus one. Who doesn't need that, right? Sounds pretty sick. Once per day, you can use Summon Monster 1 to summon a Red Mastiff. Additionally, once per day, you can use B-Shape 1 to turn into a dog. And I can't think of a problem <laughs> that isn't improved by either having a dog or possibly being a dog. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to settle so on that So you just get one. to summon Clifford once a day? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Mine, for me, as a, as a father of small children and owner of a puppy, was a no-brainer pretty sure it's like cl1 the ring of sustenance you both never need to like eat or drink again you could just like enjoy things and you want to but also two hours of sleep refreshes you as though you've had eight which i don't even remember (laughs) what eight hours of sleep feels like (laughs) and so getting to sleep for just two hours and then get more stuff done or just like more chill yeah yeah that's the one if I had to choose the one IRL magic item, that would be it. Ring of Sustenance. Only 2,500 yeah. gold. That's a deal. I just thought, could we game the system and, like, pick the furnace from Minderhall's Valley or something that allows us to create other magic items? Sorry, that is a um, an artifact. It's got to be like caster uh-huh. level. Oh, yeah, that's also caster level 20. Yeah, Yeah, that's like (laughs) wishing for unlimited wishes from a genie. Yeah. (laughs) I just wish for more genies. Um, I think I would go with a robe of useful items. You know, who doesn't need, like, a robe that just has a bunch of patches with whatever you might need on it? It's got a patch that looks like a pole. You rip it off, you got a 10-foot pole. It's got a patch that looks like a dagger. Boom, you got a knife. I think there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, sometimes it could have, like, a boat on it and stuff. I didn't check the caster level on that, but that seems it awesome. It's probably fine. What situation wouldn't be improved by suddenly having a knife? <laughs> <laughs> Just think. He's got a knife. I've got a knife. That was, yeah. <laughs> that was I got it. Immediate regret. Yeah, there you go. No, that was no, really. keep that in. Um, unfortunately, it's caster level ninth. Oh. oh no no Sam don't worry I got it I got it I uh, don't know what any of these words mean but I googled Pathfinder magic items and this gave me a table of magic item slots for animals which I don't care to know any more about I'm gonna get a capybara and I'm gonna say that capybara is magic insofar as it can talk and also qualifies as a dog that you don't have to put inside of a bag to traverse the um New York City subway system. That feels like a like a magic item that's probably level five. Yeah, there is almost certainly an item that lets you summon like a fae and you can pick its form. I'm sure there's like a ring or something that has that spell in it. Yeah, that's the one. Because there's like uh, summon animal companion or whatever the spell is where like you summon a fae like in the shape of an animal. And I'm sure there's like a ring or an amulet or something that just has that spell in it. So you can just summon your human-level intelligence capybara whenever you want. Aww. Who doesn't want a little magic capybara? That robe? It's amazing. I've never heard of it. I'm just looking it up right now. It's awesome, right? You've got a D100 chance. Yeah, since it's too high a caster level, I'm switching to an all-tools vest, which is a vest with shiny metal buttons and um, a number of bulging pockets. And uh, once a day, 
You can speak a command word and produce all of the tools that you would need to, pr to perform checks with any given craft skill. And that's basically what I'm looking for, is to just be able to have what I need and have it not be lost. I think that would solve a lot of problems <laughs> in my life. Because I can't find anything. Uh, there is the collar of the true companion. Oh, that's a little caster level nine. Darn. It awakens your animal, giving it like... Oh, nice. But yeah, nope. So we're just going to edit that out. No, we're going to keep it in. I, uh, I'm i not following the rules. I don't, I don't <laughs> stick to the playbook or the script or whatever. I'm getting a magic capybara and also some sort of ring for summoning animals. And I'm going to assume that's how the rules of Pathfinder go, because uh, someone will correct me at some point, I'm sure. Great question, Sam. And and also, Sir Newt, Team Human. Well, I think that's going to do it for tonight's machine learning. So uh, thanks for the questions, everybody. And we still have all the ones that we didn't get to this time on the plate for next time. And uh, I think that also does it for whatever this podcast is called. <laughs> you can say this American life that's the one good night night fail good night <laughs>one of one of asher's two archetypes i'd have to take a look i think it's mysterious stranger i'm pretty sure uh replaces the quick draw uh quick clear edit that out one of asher's two archetypes i think it's the black mm, this is a good one keep trying one of asher's two archetypes pretty sure it's mysterious stranger i think it's the texas league replaces the quick clear feet and by feet i mean deed i think after some discussion discussing discussion excellent all right jeff how was that for you good do you yeah. want to do it again yeah, yeah. me jeff who cares deeply about <laughs> how synchronized the arbitrary clap is uh, i am satisfied just, I just want to make sure you feel, you know, seen. Thanks. Uh, I'm on video here in Skype, so I definitely feel seen. We're all looking at you right now. It's fair. I uh, I trimmed the beard, so, you know, it could be worse. I can notice. You know, I was trying to do something nice and slightly mocking, Jeff, and you turned it into just, I guess, just the nice part, which is the secondary part, so... I mean, I don't know. It just we can talk about it later, but uh please don't override my subtle insults just in the future. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Mm, <laughs> I see what you did there and He's I refuse too to too powerful. <laughs> I'm just a good southern boy. I can't let a thank you go unwelcomed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well,